Welcome to the Adult Protective Services Technical Assistance Resource Center, APS TARC podcast. We come to you with the goal of sharing promising practices and innovations for the APS field, and to highlight what is achievable with fresh ideas and new partnerships to help you envision what may be replicated in your program. In this podcast, Jennifer Sperry, APS TARC subject matter expert, speaks with three legends of APS, Georgia Annetsberger, Tommy Reed, and Joe Schneider who offer their unique perspectives and reflections on their long careers, how far APS in the field have come, and some of the critical challenges that lie ahead. Now let's join them in conversation. Welcome to the APS TARC podcast. In the past podcasts, we have highlighted various programs built with grant funding and shared this information in the hopes of innovation being replicated across the country and in the territories. Today, however, we will be changing things up a bit, and we will have a conversation with three legends of APS. Just as we can learn from one another in sharing programmatic ideas, we can learn from those who have done this APS work for years and have seen the significant growth and innovation occur. It's also very refreshing to see how far our field of APS has come. So without further ado, I would like to introduce Georgia Annetsberger, Joe Snyder, and Tommy Reed. I will let each of them tell the listeners a bit about their career and background in APS. Georgia, we'll start with you. So when I first got the invitation to speak, I started thinking about how long that's been that I've been involved with both the field of elder abuse as well as adult protective services. And when I thought about it, it's just two years short of a half century. So it goes back a long time to 1974. And uh, happened to be my first social work job. I had been interested in older people and wanted to be a social worker mainly to change their situation ever since I was 16 years old. And um, this particular job came into existence in a rural county right east of Cleveland. I had only 5,000 older people in it, in fact. But they were hiring me as their um, older adult specialist to do anything and everything with regard to older people that might come along. And um, what I found at this public welfare agency, and by the way, they were able to hire me because Title 20 of the Social Security Act had just been passed and they were flooded with money to do new and different things than they had ever done before. But what I find myself doing, uh, that anything and everything for older people was mostly adult protective services. And in doing that kind of work, I also found that those cases, the individuals that I encountered, situations of self-neglect, of financial exploitation, of physical abuse, all of that, they just stuck with me. And I got to think if I ever had the opportunity in my life to make a difference, for the lives of those individuals that I would do that. And so um, fortunately, I've had lots of opportunities over the years. And although the bulk of my work has been really in the field of elder abuse and not specifically with adult protective services, in fact, adult protective services still has been a large part of uh, what's important to me and what I've done. So uh, for example, uh, I've spent 15 years administering health protective services, uh, both at the public um, public level, about five years of that, and about 10 years 
uh, for a nonprofit that was designated under Ohio law to do adult protective service work. Um, I staffed the committee that wrote Ohio's adult protective services law and have been involved in subsequent amendments to that law. I helped establish the oldest elder abuse networks in the country, and they both were initially around adult protective services. The first was in 1982, the Protective Services Consortium for Older Adults, Tiger County, uh, a local uh, network. And then the other was the Ohio Coalition for Adult Protective Services, the first state network in the country. And that was in 1984. I've been involved with five funded adult protective services research projects. Um, I put together Ohio's training curriculum for adult protective service workers. And probably the last thing I'll mention is I've been involved with a variety of state and national efforts to improve adult protective services. Uh, I served on both of the two groups, um, the expert panels for the voluntary consensus guidelines, as well as the um, similar group for the elder, uh, the adult protective services research uh, agenda. So just a little part of APS background, right? You just oh. touched a little bit of it, being facetious. Yeah. So next we've got Tommy Reed. Hi there. Um, so I am in Texas, and um, in Texas, the APS program is a state-administered program. There are 254 counties under that jurisdiction, and uh, I've always worked out in the field in western part of the state of Texas. Um, I recently completed a 48-year career um, with Texas Department of Family and Protective Services. APS is the program inside that agency. And I've uh, worked and managed in that agency's various programs uh, for that period of time. Um, in the early 1990s, Texas had a, a statewide program that was called uh, Community Care to the Aged and Disabled. And it provided limited home-based uh, services and care to that population. And our caseworkers uh, at that time began to uh, identify clients within their caseloads who were victims of what we now call abuse, neglect, and exploitation, and realized that those clients needed more specialized care and more uh, and services. So um, I developed a pilot program in our rural region uh, in a part of West Texas to experiment with specialized adult protective services, caseworkers, and units. Um, we got that off the ground of, uh, finally, and about six months after or into that uh, pilot program, Texas uh, started its first statewide APS program. And so we were folded, of course, into that program. And from there, I became one of uh, Texas' first uh, district managers, uh, uh, being responsible for about a fifth of the state of Texas, and sort of more or less that sort of thing from there forward. Uh, Judy Rouse was the first director of Texas APS at that time and was very instrumental in getting that started. My geographic area of responsibility changed many times. Uh, through the years, but usually consisted of a, around 100 or so counties, uh, including vast geographic areas of uh, West Texas. Uh, while much of that area is very rural and sparsely populated, uh, 
Uh, it also usually consisted of one or more larger cities like El Paso or the city of Austin or um, some of the uh, a little bit smaller towns. So um, the area also is bounded by two states and one foreign country, Mexico, New Mexico and um, Oklahoma. So those added to the fun of working in that area. Uh, my education was in uh, business management and then in social services with the masters uh, from Our Lady of the Lake for that. So it was it turned out to be a really good mix of managing in this arena for um, for all those years. All right. What a background. And Joe Snyder. Thank you, Jennifer. Um, my my master's was in counseling and I have a certificate in gerontological counseling. So I took a ton of gerontology courses and it got me interested in the phenomenon of aging. And when long-term care started with the Philadelphia Corporation for Aging, um, private nonprofit area agency on aging in America, um, I started as a frontline worker. And um, as after a stop as a supervisor, nine years later, I was the director of protective services at, at, at the agency. Um, and to give you some context, when I retired in 2018, the law in Pennsylvania was 30 years old. And the first um, five years, we had four different directors and an 11-month absence. And the next 25, it was me. So I got to form the program. And with the help of all the people throughout the country that I leaned on, um, put together a program that, that flourished for 25 years. Um, at the same time, um, I was I I was working a lot. We do a lot in APS, as you all know, but I was working specifically with financial institutions, starting with banks and credit unions and then going to broker dealers. And that's continued throughout my career, continues today. So that became a theme for me going through. Same time, my second career was with NAPSA, National Adult Protective Services Association, where I started as the regional rep. And as I started as the regional rep, the first thing I did is called every administrator in the state in my region and invited them to Philadelphia for a meeting. It's the first time we all met face to face. And from there, we just went to all the different states. We rotated. It was really great. And I, I had the, inside the regional rep, I was then the conference chair, the membership chair, the president-elect, president, past president. And for the last decade or so, I've been the policy chair for NAPSA, along with uh, one of the founding members of the Financial Exploitation Advisory Board, the NAPSA. So it's all culminated in, in, a, in a great career. And I've done a lot of work regionally and nationally. I was part of the first Elder Abuse Summit in Washington in 2001 and participated in the Elder Justice Roadmap Project um, back a few years ago. So... So I've had a, I've had my my career at Philadelphia Corporation for Aging, and that's have given me tons of opportunities to meet and work with the people who I admire most, which is the APS workers and supervisors. Wow, you guys have such a diverse background, but all within APS, and it just shows you how much how multifaceted APS really is. So um, let's take a little turn here. And I want to ask each of you, what do you consider to be the most important innovations or developments in APS during your career? So Georgia, we'll start with you again. 
So there, there are three that immediately come to my mind, at least. And uh, the first has to do with the enactment of state laws that both legitimatized adult protective services as an intervention, but also provided direction for what it would be, how it would be handled, um, and what it would cover. Um, and also that those laws right from the beginning served to limit adult protective services power to take away the rights of older clients and vulnerable younger clients that it was directed at. And why that was so important was um, there was a concern, especially during the 1970s, uh, that adult protective services had the potential of eroding rights and by eroding rights, it would have negative consequences overall. And probably the initial uh, thrust came from the research that had been done by the Benjamin Rose Institute in, in Cleveland. It was one of seven demonstration projects um, that helped develop the concept of uh, adult protective services across the country. And it had a very rich uh, and still does for that matter, a very rich research base within it. And so it used um, a randomized trial, uh, basically to look at the consequences of the receipt of adult protective services versus not receiving it, but having similar characteristics as an individual. And what it found was those that had received adult protective services were more likely to be institutionalized and die. And you can imagine the controversy that that caused. And it really was instrumental in really thinking about, and for those that developed these laws, which began in 1973, by the way, those who developed those laws to be conscious of limiting the powers of APS so that it wouldn't have those adverse consequences. So that's the first thing. The second thing, um, as you can imagine from what I said about myself, I'm a big fan of uh, networks and teams and people working together. I think elder abuse is such a difficult, complex, um, a wicked problem, as they would call it, that um, in fact, you have to have all kinds of systems, organizations, and disciplines working together. It simply cannot be done otherwise. And so I'm a big fan of networks and teams and consortiums and coalitions. And I think they have been fundamental in making any element of dealing with elder abuse and uh, the use of adult protective services possible. So that's the second. The concept for having those kinds of things really began in the 50s and 60s, but making it all happen took a couple of decades later. Uh, the third thing that I think was the most important development is the administration for community living providing a home for adult protective services, which gives it a federal anchor. It, it provides it with support, has the ability to strengthen and to grow the program that would never have happened had Kathy Greenlee not stepped forward and made that announcement. And she deserves incredible credit for doing so. Thank you, Georgia. And you know, yesterday we we heard the continuation of that with the Elder Justice Coordinating Council. So the work continues from that federal home. So uh, 
Joe, what do you consider to be the most important innovations or developments? Well, I'm going to piggyback, first of all, just what um, Georgia said, the the the, uh, the recognition of recognizing this is a multidisciplinary problem that requires a multidisciplinary response and the elevation of APS as being an equal partner um, in the collaborations and, and, and a critical partner. Um, we, we're proud that in our task force that we formed in Philadelphia, if, you know, APS founded and APS headed it or it still heads it through the, through the 13 years it's been in existence, bringing together all the, all the different um, disciplines together. So I think those things um, and, and what was really the first thing that came to mind for me is the collaboration in the network, which really, we had a lot of natural ones in Philadelphia, but we worked to establish more and to see them develop all over the country. Um, it makes it so much easier to work when you know and respect your partner. Um, and it, it just is a great thing. So that was first for me. Second, for, from a professional point of view, Literally was the was the um, was the founding and growth of NAPSA, the National Adult Protective Services Association. For me, I was the only director of a protective service program in Pennsylvania. No other city was big enough. Pittsburgh sub subcontracted theirs, and I had nobody to talk to about my issues. And I can't even remember who first introduced me to. You know, told me I think I first called Marilyn Whalen in Tennessee, who was who was instrumental in putting together these networks, and then introduced me to Joanne Otto, of course, and Kathleen Quinn, and I was off and running. Um, you know, I knew I was among my people immediately, and people that all knew more than I did, so I could learn from all of them, and the, the ability to talk to people across the country, the network, and as I'm. Proud of saying, probably shouldn't be proud of this, but proud of saying I've never had an original idea in my life. I just keep stealing bits of things from everybody across everywhere and trying to see how they would fit in to the concept of where we were going in Philadelphia and the overall um, field of, of APS. And it was only made possible through NAPSA and to watch from the growth of people sitting around at the Texas conference meeting at 7 a.m. in the morning uh, 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 you know, a dozen people to start talking to see the growth today of the, I don't even know how many members we have now, Jennifer, it keeps going up so fast. Um, 1,800. 1,800 <laughs> members yeah. from from 12 or 15. And now that'd be the, you know, the grant for the National Training Center, which will revolutionize the field, in my view, is just mind-blowing. And, um, you know, it's comfortable for anybody anywhere, you know, a caseworker from Iowa to come up to you and say, hey, I've heard you've done this. And can you tell me here's what I have? And it happens all the time amongst us. So it's, it, that's really been for professional growth, growth and the growth of the field and pushing it forward to where it should be. That's been, that, that's been the, uh, the big thing for me on a professional basis. So there are two things that come to mind for me. Great. So it really all started in Texas. So Tommy can bring it home now. <laughs> <laughs> well, Texas, of course, never minds taking credit for anything. <laughs> but um, I, I do recall some of those uh, early conferences in the beginning of the APS program that uh, Texas um, hosted and uh, being a field manager 
we weren't in that um, 7 a.m. meeting with you, Joe, but we were uh, very impressed with all the leadership from around the country who came to some of those meetings and from, from other countries and Japan and Norway and wherever. Uh, it, it was interesting to see the program in its infancy at that time. Uh, my thoughts are a little bit different from you guys because you're looking at things on such a broader uh, and maybe more national perspective. And my thoughts about uh, through the history of APS had more to do with sort of things that affected us here in the state of Texas. And I think automation was one of the biggest um, uh, changes and had the greatest impact on us. Uh, Texas was one of the early adapters to automation and um, then as things went on, we became very um, concerned about and I think did a fairly good job of data collection. And a lot of that data has been um, helpful, not only to our state, as I understand it, but to others, um, others as well. Um, that, of course, was an interesting ride in uh, moving from, um, I, I remember the days of paper and, and uh, paper files and all of that sort of thing and, and those changes to automation and uh, all that went through that. Uh, I was thinking yesterday about um, the case, the, the changes just with some of the uh, equipment and whatever we, I think, Early on, uh, we got something called bag phones, or we called it the brick. It weighed about 100 pounds, and you would put it in your car, and then you had a little uh, magnetic antenna. You popped on the top of your car and had a cord running through your window into your car, and we looked so cool with those uh, devices. They seldom worked because the connectivity was very awful at that point in time. And then particularly working in rural areas like a lot of my staff were, uh, there really wasn't much hope, but we looked cool while we were doing it. Um, I think we went from that to uh, pagers and then Blackberries were around for a bit and um, then iPhones for some of the managers and then eventually iPhones for all of the staff. Um, and it was pretty revolutionary. Um, in Texas, there still are issues in some parts of the state with connectivity issues because of being so rural and spread out, but those things do uh, continue to improve over time. Um, a little aside about computers with automation, um, we had, of course, desktops in the beginning, uh, but at some point, and again, this is history according to me only, so it, you can edit this, but uh, my recollection is that one of the uh, Texas legislative sessions way back, um, the program asked for a certain number of additional staff. And the decision that was made was not to give us staff, but to give us funds that were earmarked specifically for uh, something called laptop computers. We had no idea what they were, but the money was to be used only for that and came with the expectation from that legislature that they would be used in the field and not as just new desktop computers. And almost overnight, these, this gift was thrust upon us uh, with uh, little time for any planning or training or preparation at all. And uh, frankly, I, I think some, some staff still uh, who've been around long enough still 
remember that and suffer from the trauma of that and are still trying to adjust to the idea of using computers in a different way. But, but over time, uh, we really, I think, made uh, good use of the automation. And um, even with the, the uh, laptop computers, finally found some ways to do mobile casework in a, a more effective kind of way. Wow, <clears throat> that, is, that is something. All you needed was like a little siren to go on the top of the car with the brick phone. <laughs> you know, just imagining, right. I mean, it's, it's something. So really networking, federal home and ACL, collaborating with your peers in areas like NAPSA, automation and technology. So those are some really, really good things to point out about innovative developments in APS. Let's take it more personal now. And um, I'd love to hear from each of you about what career accomplishment you're so most proud of because you've all had lengthy um, and glamorous careers in APS, but tell us what you're most proud of. And we can again, start with Georgia. Well, actually a couple of these are things I've already talked about, but I have to begin with, it was uh, such an honor and such a foundational thing um, to to be able to um, staff that committee that wrote Ohio's Adult Protective Services Law, partly because it was such a great committee, truly a great committee. It, it was comprised of 10 individuals, nine of which were women, one man. He happened to be a minister and also um, had his responsibilities, the long-term care ombudsman program. And among the nine other people, uh, four of them were attorneys, uh, four of us were social workers, and one was a nurse. Everybody had experience in dealing with older people, and about half of us had experience in adult protective service work. But it was such a vital, active um, committee that could debate issues and really deal with the hard decisions that had to be made in order to draft legislation of that nature. And we became close to be truthful. And so after we got enacted Ohio's services law, I think we decided we had to stay together somehow. And that really led to my second thing, which is establishing all kinds of elder abuse networks in Ohio. I've been involved in establishing five and they're all still in existence two at the state level and three at the local level, in other words, in greater Cleveland. There was really that group of individuals in the beginning that sort of served as the anchor and thrust to move all of that forward. Um, I'm such a believer in the worth of all that. And the newest thing I've been involved with is I'm one of the founding members of what's called the National Network of State Elder Justice Coalitions, an attempt to have all states across the country uh, have something what those of us that have them, California, um, Ohio, New York, et cetera, what we found makes such a difference in dealing with this problem. Um, the third thing is something I haven't mentioned. Uh, so I have my uh, PhD in social work and my doctoral dissertation uh, was on elder abuse. And specifically, it tried to answer the question, why do adult sons and daughters physically abuse their elderly parents? And was one of, if not the first, research of its type to focus in on the perpetrators by interviewing the perpetrators themselves, something that 
really has not been done much to this state. And that's unfortunate. And I say that because most of us believe, and some research does suggest, that it's really the characteristics and the risk factors associated with the perpetrators that are more predictive of elder abuse occurrence than any connected with the victims. And so it's we really lack that kind of understanding. And I also believe, in addition, that if we're to really eradicate this problem, we have to begin to be more concerned about what kinds of services and supports are going to reduce the likelihood of elder abuse by dealing with those perpetrators and their issues and their needs. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Joe, what are what career accomplishments are you most proud of? So in all professions, you hear people say often that I stand on the shoulders of those who came before me. And it's really true in APS. It's such a collaborative effort. And just look at this week. We've had, you know, um, Bill Benson testified before the EJCC and collaborated with four or five other people. Um, there's no sense of total ownership that you have to be you. And, and we just all work together to get that. And Jennifer, you and I this week, talked before the FINRA Roundtable, the Financial Industry Regulatory Authority, for those who don't know. And we got together with the FINRA Office of Governmental Affairs um, before that to make sure that our message was the most effective um, to the audience of broker-dealers that were listening. And it was so easy. And again, no sense of, you know, well, this is FINRA, this is NAPSA. We just got together and I thought, you know, it came out really, really great. And that happens all the time. So in saying that, um, one of the things I'm proud of is NAPSA um, picked me a couple of times to testify before Congress. And in doing so, um, you know, when I first started, I said, Joanne Otto and Kathleen Quinn and Bill Ben said, will you write first draft and we're going we're, we're gonna to edit it. Do you mind if we edit it? I'm like, I don't, know, I don't mind if you write the whole thing. I mean, you know, you're three first ballot Hall of Famers. You want to put your hand up my you know, sport coat and I'll move my lips. We can do that too. Um, you know, it, it, it was just a privilege to go down there and talk there and know when I was talking on the panel that because of everybody else, I was pretty much the expert there. I knew this stuff cold as well as anybody that was talking that day. So that felt good. And the other one for, for the, the testimony is I got to speak at the first World Elder Abuse Awareness Day at the United Nations representing APS. And that was a heady, heady thing. And, and again, to be up there next to the Brazilian Minister of Health and the Australian Prime Minister's representative to this and me, I kept saying me. Um, and, and from that, um, people in Japan were starting their first elder abuse law. And they had heard uh, my presentation. And so they, they came to America the next year and they visited um, the National Center on Elder Abuse in D.C. when Toshi Tatara was running it, and, and me in Philadelphia. And I was able to take this delegation to a uh, guardianship hearing in the court. I had a judge that agreed to that and spoke to them afterwards. Of course, we, all, we had interpreters. And to senior law center to sit down for an afternoon with legal service provider and how that works. And then to me, because we had just automated and got a centralized intake system, so, so we went through that. We showed them how the report came in, what a case was. A couple of them went out on cases. It was really quite a quite a, a neat thing. And as, as 
Jennifer knows for years they were my screensaver on my computer. It was being <laughs> delegation. It was so much fun and so wonderful to be part of that. And just, just again, to the opportunity to NAPSA to do that. Um, the other ones were more around working with the financial industry. I was lucky enough, um, you know, after, after reading, again, the collaboration thing and never having an original idea, after reading the Massachusetts Banking Project that was out at the time and really taking that and customizing it, I started knocking on doors because we weren't getting records and we weren't getting recognized in the financial industry. Um, and I clearly, from, from reading that and reading the um, publication, Can Bank Tellers Tell, that came out from the uh, American Bar Association, it was clear to me that there's two exceptions to the Federal Privacy Act that we should be getting records. And after knocking on doors for months, I finally got somebody in the banking industry, Wachovia Bank, which was a national bank in 14 states, to agree with me. And we started a pilot project that went from Philadelphia to Pennsylvania to 14 states. And uh, we did, at the end of it, from 2003, 2007, we um, protected $62 million in assets. Um, we jointly investigated 3,000 cases. And what was a throwaway line for me at the time we was we got no lawsuits. And that was the second besides no federal law prohibits us from sharing. And, oh, we can't share because some, everybody's going to sue us. Well, it didn't happen. All that happened was family members and individual clients thanking us for saving their lives and fortunes. So that was big. And it led to the, you know, me going down to the financial services roundtable with my partner from Wachovia and starting a, uh, fraud prevention toolkit through the financial services roundtable and a paper on protecting the elderly and vulnerable from financial fraud um, through them and, and came back and started task force in Philadelphia. And it was just really, um, really great stuff to be part of. Um, and then finally, one more time with this, because of that work, I was approached by the Clark Foundation for the Protection of Elders to uh, they had some money and they said, you, you seem to have good ideas. Um, what would you do with this? And I said, well, you know, I've been talking with my friends from the broker dealer industry and the banking industry, and they would love to have some standardization. So how, how about if we create a standard form and guidelines to request records? And so again, because of that money, I was able to bring in three other APS programs and a bunch of um, national and local banks and, again, legal service providers in Philly, and we had a group, Jennifer, you were part of that group, and we sat down and we hammered out the form that exists today, um, and have tweaked it since to, to include, we did it again with the, that was banks and credit unions, we did it again with the broker-dealer agency, and it's, you know, it's all over the place. We talked about it at the Finder Roundtable yesterday, I talked about it um, when I was in Ohio last month, and I was their plenary speaker, and it's just great that so many people are using that and it's accepted um, by the um, by the financial service industry uh, almost universally. So that that they, those are probably the highlights um, beside the every, the highlight of getting to work every day with the, my, the greatest people in the world, APS workers and supervisors. They're, they're my highlights. That's right. The APS field does bring special people into it. <laughs> And Georgia, you mentioned you were at GSA this year, right? And yes, and, and listening to what Joe had to say. So um, when I attended GSA this year, I noticed that one of the symposium was uh, 
basically populated by individuals from Japan. And the focus of this particular symposium just fits into what you have to say, because these were individuals that had worked with Toshi Tatara when he really was instrumental in getting that law passed in Japan, the Elder Abuse Prevention Act. But now this new generation of individuals that were his mentees in a sense and following his tracks, um, they were involved in trying to reform the law to make it more appropriate, more applicable to the kinds of situations of elder abuse that they were encountering now. And so the whole symposium was based on um, what kinds of changes should be made and the research behind making those recommendations for change. So it's it, it was wonderful to hear about all the energy in Japan in general happening around the subject area, but also wonderful to hear that uh, the work of Hoshi continues and it continues to be important um, in his country of origin. So it was it was great. And it all started from a visit in Philadelphia with Joe sure. Snyder. Sure. <laughs> so let's uh, transition into the field and uh, hear from Tommy about your career accomplishments you're most proud of having, what, over 100 counties? I mean, it's just, that's a lot. <laughs> it, it's a lot, but it doesn't have the United Nations in it, so I can't, I can't uh, go there. But uh, I, I would just, uh, thinking about this, I one of the areas that I really am proud of is the work that we've done um, in the Texas ABS program, and, and it was an instrumental part of that with mobile casework. Um, as I mentioned earlier, um, we sort of had automation or, or the technology, if you will, thrust upon us, and we were ill-prepared to, to work with that and really didn't do much with it, having laptops and tablets of, of, available to us and for our use. But a lot of those just sat on desks and just were um, uh, not used to their full capacity. And it really wasn't until some later years when intakes continued to rise and um, the numbers of staff allocated from the legislature did not rise <laughs> to go with that. And we had to do more with less, basically. So we started looking out of um, you know, desperation of how to do casework more efficiently. And, um, and automation obviously was one of the, the obvious answers, but one that we were really not uh, prepared to, to use so well. So uh, it took a lot, of, a lot of work by a lot of folks to uh, develop methods to, to do that and to really to use uh, the laptop computers or tablets uh, more effectively out in the field. That was not an easy transition, and it's not one that's not without controversy. I, I, I know uh, everywhere as to how much and how little you should use that out in the field, but we did find ways to use that in the field so that documentation could be done uh, more closely to real time, and that uh, which was such an aid uh, with the way things change so rapidly on an APS case or being able to hand that case off to another worker, somebody's ill or whatever, and um, have that documentation almost uh, up to date. And so we did, you know, our, our emphasis was really about taking the equipment in the field, but only taking it into homes where that was a safe situation or where we 
uh, or the caseworker could do documentation soon thereafter in a safe, safe uh, location or environment. So it was never um, you know, forced, if you will, uh, into the middle of the mix with the client. So I don't think there was ever a loss in relationship with the client. And yet I think there was some improvement in um, this, the speed and probably the accuracy, or we thought so, because documentation was done more quickly after the event. So when recall was best and, and all that sort of thing. Uh, it, it sounds sort of simple on uh, the surface, but it's much more complex than that. And then um, implementing that with staff and convincing staff that there are ways to, to change your methods and, and your practice. And, and fit that in, uh, that's a much larger hurdle to do and to find ways to do it effectively. So, uh, but I think that we were fairly successful with that. Uh, the other thing, uh, just, just uh, because I have the microphone for a minute, I just wanna kind of give a shout out, if you will, to mid-level um, APS managers. I think that uh, caseworkers, uh, rightly so, tend to get most of the recognition out in the field. Um, and I don't want to take away from them, and I'm still just amazed that we're able to hire uh, good folks to, to do that job for, for what most of them get paid around the country. But mid-level case, excuse mid-level managers, um, I think, um, straddle that fence of having one foot in being, you know, with the client and with the caseworker and the family and so forth. And then, but they're also part of management and trying to advocate and get the resources and, and um, the issues across that caseworkers have in the field. Uh, to, to upper level managers. And it's a very, um, very difficult tightrope they walk in, in trying to wear both of those hats. And so, um, so I think I've used every analogy now that maybe that, that can apply. But um, I, I, I do just uh, want to shout out to those mid-level managers. I think they did an amazing job in APS and, um, and teaching and educating and always um, recruiting and training new case workers because you know there's never an end to, to the changes and the revolving uh, unfortunate uh, revolving door with our staff. So um, anyway, good work to them. I think that's a, a really nice shout out to the supervisors because you're right, one foot on this side, one foot on the other side. So to wrap it up, um, if if you guys could give me a few sentences on looking forward, what do you think are the biggest challenges facing APS today and will be facing in the future? So Georgia, we'll let you kick it off one last time. Okay, thank you. Um, well, to come to mind, um, and I'm gonna use kind of a phrase for both of them. The first phrase is just say no. I think over time, Adult Protective Services has been asked to and has taken on more and more with respect to the variety of things connected or potentially connected to elder abuse, the variety of individuals and perpetrators um, that uh, might come under that umbrella. And you have to begin to wonder if any agency can effectively and meaningfully do that. And I would suggest that it cannot. No organization, no system can do it all. And so uh, an intervention like APS, which began back in 
the 1960s, early 1970s began really with self-neglect and the potential of financial exploitation as the pivotal issues, you know, now takes on the whole waterfront. And I think many of us question if that's even possible. So just say no. The second one is proof. I think um, it is extremely important and it'll be a challenge, but it's extremely important to demonstrate through research that APS makes a measurable and positive difference in ways that matter, particularly to the victims of elder abuse and the public at large. I think only then uh, we'll get the kind of support both financial and otherwise that it really needs and deserves. Thank you. Thank you, Georgia. And Joe? I'm going to start by, thank you. I'm going to start by, again, stealing Georgia's idea of, of um, just say no, because it's, um, you know, it, it can be, I think it was my, our good friend, Carl Urban, who first said to me this term, we're the safety net for the safety net. And why that's heady and makes you feel good, there's a danger in going above what you should, especially when you're limited in funding and when you talk about, you know, we, we Adult Protective Service was never meant to be everything to everybody at all times. It falls that way a lot as it did during the pandemic and other times, but there is a real danger in, in hurting your program in the long run when you do that. Um, and there's not a single Adult Protective Service worker who would ever say no to anything so once you give it to them, they're going to go and run. Um, so you've got to really, as, a, as an administrator, really, really watch that. And the other one is, is related to that is the whole question of funding and funding and recognition. I mean, we're still, you know, we talk about elder abuse being first mentioned in Congress in 1950 and having work done in the 70s. And yet here we are in 2022, um, still having to protect the ser social service block grant at every turn for the states that rely on that and get the money um, that we deserve to put us up where we should be with Child Protective, with the Alzheimer's Association, with all the other uh, fields that need it because we touch all of that and everybody looks to us at the end. And yet somehow we can't break through the, the, you know, the, the barriers that exist of why doesn't anybody think this is gonna happen to them? Why, you know, why do we testify before Congress and often people that are, you know, older, you know, like myself, and they're sitting there and say, you know, this can happen to you. Um, everything we say, you know, as we always talk, Jennifer, I always started with every speech. If you don't, if you remember one thing that I said today, remember this, anybody can be a victim, anybody can be a perpetrator. And, and I mean that 100% across the board. So join us in getting the funding and recognition we need to put APS and elder abuse prevention, protection, and investigation where it belongs at the top of the pyramid with everyone else. So, so that's my big um, soapbox issue. All right, good takeaways. And Tommy? Well, I would just build off of what Joe was talking about because I think in Texas, one of the issues that we have, which then relates to the funding issue is the visibility issue. I think that uh, APS is one of the best kept secrets in, this, in our state. Uh, the average person on the streets never heard of our program, knows nothing about it. And um, therefore, <laughs> they don't support that. And many of our legislators, I would say, are, are focused on so many other things. 
uh, oil and gas and whatever in our state um, and you know way down the list and I really don't think they're very aware of, of who, who we are and what the program can do. And so we have little chance uh, of getting the resources that we need and deserve uh, when, when that's the situation. And I think the other thing of, uh, related to that is that sometimes we shoot ourselves in the foot as a program, or we have here, I think, because um, we live in the shadow of, of CPS and other programs that are better funded and better known. But sometimes I think we sort of hide because we can't handle the work we already have coming in the front door. And we're afraid that greater visibility will just increase the intakes without any kind of resources to back that up. So we just sort of hide in the corner and hope they won't notice us uh, and, and just sort of leave us alone. And um, so anyway, it's um, it, it always seems to come back to money <laughs> and funding uh, in, in, in so many conversations, but um, visibility is such an issue for us, I think. Right. Well, thank you. Thank you. So the takeaways I'm hearing are just say no, <laughs> focus on funding and visibility that we are, we need to get out there and not be to the best kept secret anymore, but we need the funding and need to say no to keep, you know, the work good. So to close, I'd like to sincerely thank the three of you for sharing so much APS history and knowledge it's really enlightening to hear how far the fields come and humbling to realize how far we still have yet to go. So I'm sure the listeners will enjoy hearing from all of you about this and the conversation will energize us to keep this going and um, keep the good work that APS is doing each and every day. So thank you again. Thank you very much for listening. The APS TARC is a project of the U.S. Administration for Community Living Administration on Aging, Department of Health and Human Services, and administered by WRMA Incorporated. Contractors' findings, conclusions, and points of view do not necessarily represent the official policy of the federal government. To give us feedback on this podcast or any other APS TARC product, please email us at APSTARC-TA at ACL.HHS And please join us next time for another APS TARC podcast.